Greetings, dear listeners. A huge treat for you this week. We had Richard Reeves, Senior Fellow in Economic Studies and the Director of the Future of the Middle Class Initiative at the Brookings Institution, join us to talk about his new book, Of Boys and Men. It was a terrific conversation about what some, but not Richard, are calling a crisis of masculinity. The book is rightly getting a lot of attention these days, and if you haven't yet heard about it, we warmly advise you to check it out. It's a far-reaching and fiery conversation that really gets into first principles. Do men have to lose out as women won their rights? Will any policy solutions work to change the balance? Will there be a lasting backlash to these trends? Or will capitalism just work it all out? Paying subscribers get to hear the whole thing. If you're not one yet, head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe to hear the whole thing. On to the show. Richard, I absolutely loved this book. And, you know, we say this with other guests, but this time I really, really mean it. You say that every time as well. <laughs> okay, but not only did I love it, I actually think it's important in a way that most books aren't in the sense that every single American, but actually even beyond the U.S., um, it has a relevance to their lives to the extent that you, to the, to the extent that someone knows a man or a boy, this mm. book will be relevant. And the title, I think, makes that really clear. It's called Of Boys and Men. Um, and I didn't realize the full extent of the crisis. Um, I knew that there was a problem. I've heard things here and there, but it is worse than I thought. And it's probably worse than our listeners thought. And the basic idea, I think, to put it bluntly, is if we want to be serious about gender equality, we can't only talk about gender equality for women or girls. We have to talk about gender equality for men and boys, and especially boys who are falling behind on really an endless number of metrics. And I, I couldn't even believe some of the numbers here, but just to give one example, the um, the 2020 decline in college enrollment was seven times greater for men. And maybe I misread that or misunderstood mm -hmm. that, but if that is in fact true, that is remarkable. Um, mm -hmm. So anyway, we can get into some some mm -hmm. of those statistics in, in more is, detail. It is true. It is. I can. I can <laughs> okay, there in, you go. Uh, unless, like, like this is one of these areas where you really want to be sure of your facts. Uh, yes. And so, yes, that's that is absolutely true. And again, it's one of those things where I think I had to get to table three of Appendix A of of a you know of a report to to find that, and then go wait what, and then get someone else to check it and go, am I getting this right? And eventually, then we did write it up for Brookings, and it did start getting some attention. But it's a classic example of just like I had to dig pretty hard, uh, and I was looking for something else, and then found that number. I was like, wait, really? Part, part, yeah. of the, part of the story of the book, Richard, is that 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 uh, we don't keep track of these figures, right? I mean, you know, mm -hmm. one of the, I think, subtexts of it is that uh, the sort of, you know, mid-20th century on uh, liberal project of uh, redressing uh, the inequalities in society, the gender inequalities, um, have sort of flown one way. And, and 
we find ourselves today in, in a situation where I don't know. I don't know if it's fair to say that it's a it's a uh, sort of a, a a lingering sort of I don't know um, systemically how to this, that social scientists have 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 you know while still focusing on closing gender gaps for the benefit of women. A lot of times, a lot of the statistics facing men just aren't recorded for almost sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, reasons of how things are done. Because well, that comes through a lot, right, in, in, your, in your research, that you're, you're struggling to find the, the, some of these data. Uh, yeah, so I think there's, a, there's two different things that could be going on. One is, are we actually tracking the data uh, by, by sex or gender? And sometimes we're not. And, and you know, the most for me, one of the most obvious examples of that is we don't track high school graduation rates by sex uh, in the US. And so to get the high school graduation rate, I, I just wanted the gender gap in high school graduate on time high school graduation rates. And I thought, oh, that's a quick, you know, that'll be a quick project. I ended up having to do a whole Brookings research project where we went state by state to get state level data on it and then put combine it. Um, so that isn't collected for sure. But I would say actually much more commonly, the data is maybe collected and maybe even reported, but it is reported, as I've said, in sort of table four of appendix C and not highlighted uh, if the gender inequality uh, you know, doesn't go the way that perhaps would, would be traditionally thought of. And so there's two different things. One is like, do we know? And the second is like, do we know? Mm. Because sure if you're willing to dig and sometimes go to the i've got a lot of times i just went to authors and i emailed them said hey can you break that by gender for me and they go yeah sure uh oh that's interesting um and so it's it's sometimes that it's that it's not highlighted even if it's there um e even if the data is collected and i think that's because you know honestly our priors are to look at it the other way around but also and there's an institutional aspect to this too there are a lot of organizations whose job it is to highlight gender inequalities as they affect girls and women um it's literally their job they wake up every day and so they're looking at labor market trends they're looking at education trends a, a recent example is um, a study out of the national partnership on women and families which looks at the infrastructure bill and criticizes it because 70 percent of the jobs will go to men actually working class men disproportionately of color it looks like but but the only reason we know that is because there was an organization who broke the data down for us and specifically to highlight how it advantages men, not women. There aren't the equivalent institutions on the other side. And by the way, I think you could easily describe that as a feature of that bill rather than necessarily a bug. But maybe that's to get into the politics of all of this. But uh, the basic point is that even if the data is there, it's typically not highlighted. And you have to ask yourself the question as to whose institutional or personal interest is it in? to highlight gender inequalities when they run the other way. And there isn't a really good answer to that question. I mean, so I'm, I'm, ahead, I'm, so I'm a little bit, I'm torn in the sense that part of me thinks that this book is extremely controversial. And the other part of me thinks that it's not. And I suppose that's actually an indication of where we're at as a country, that things that might other seem otherwise seem obvious are now spoken about with considerable difficulty. Um, but so hmm. I think there's the empirical argument that boys are falling behind. But I think what might be more controversial is how you explain the gap. And you do talk about things that aren't supposed to be talked about in polite company, that there are in fact innate differences between the genders, we are not all the same. And not only mm -hmm. are we not all the same, 
were actually quite different in important ways. And some of those things are physiological. And I was not aware of this, for example, that um, boys' brains develop in a fundamentally different way, that the, prefront the prefrontal cortex, the so-called CEO of the brain, actually develops several years later for boys than for girls. And mm -hmm. that's just a very, and presumably you can't, that, that's something people have to accept, it's science. Then there are things that are maybe more subjective, but could you maybe just talk mm -hmm. us through that a little bit? Are these differences socially constructed? Are they innate? And obviously this is an age old debate about nature versus nurture. Yeah, and a frustrating one for sure, because you know the the sort of you know the high school answer is well both. The the question is then how much, uh, and how one interacts with the other between nature and culture, and so it depends. It, it's entirely going to depend on what we're looking at. Like what's the, what's the question at hand, and so. It's a general truth that distributions overlap, right? And understanding that distributions can differ but overlap is a big part of it. But different distributions overlap to different extents. So the male and female wage distribution, for example, now they really overlap a lot. I mean, they look quite similar, but the distribution of violent crime rates between men and women doesn't overlap very much at all, right? They have incredibly separate distributions. So the question is, how, how much do they overlap? And then why does that matter? Um, and how does it matter? And unfortunately, like some of these things are, <laughs> I, I'll give the example you just drew on, uh, Shadi. Let's look at that. Where there isn't really any controversy is the, the development of the prefrontal cortex, you, as you quite rightly say, is, you know, it develops a bit later in boys, on average, a year or two later. And it particularly matters in adolescence. So it's the CEO of the brain. But as I like to think of it, it's the bit of the brain that makes you do your chemistry homework rather than going out partying with your friends. Uh, it's a bit of your brain that, that thinks ahead. It's the bit of your brain that controls the risk. And adolescence is a period where actually we're, you know, we're running ahead of ourselves. It's, it's more risk-taking, but much more true for boys than girls. And boys do develop a little bit later. So to the extent you have an education system that rewards skills of deferred gratification, paying attention, getting your homework done, turning it in, that's obviously going to favor the people who have that more developed. And there's no real controversy about that. Interestingly, we can argue, we can argue about how and in what ways male and female brains differ. Uh, and I think both sides just you know get that probably wrong. Well, one overweights, the other underweights. But there's no real controversy about the timing of the development, <laughs> uh, but not also not discussed. And so our education system continues to be constructed as if 16-year-old girls and boys were on average the same, and they're not. And it's interesting, when I shared this book with a liberal colleague um, here at Brookings, very liberal, very feminist, and she read that chapter, and her response was, well, duh, I've got a daughter and a son, tell me something I don't know. And so it's interesting how when people actually think about their own experience, they go, yeah, of course we know that. I mean, like, we've known that since the beginning of time. But are we not allowed to know it anymore? And more importantly, does it then matter for how we think about education? And I would argue that it does. And so that's where it becomes relevant. If it matters, then we should pay attention to it. And that one, I think, really does matter. So, Richard, the, 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 what you were talking about, about you know, all the incentives, the institutional incentives to pay attention to a lot of these things, part of the book's argument is that we need to rejigger that so we're paying more equitably to both sides and being able to address it by policy. 
One of the other arguments, though, in the book that that jumps jumped out at me is that you know when policies have been sort of tried in <clears throat> a more egalitarian way, they they benefit women and men are falling behind, and and that signals, you know, less a um, a gender uh, sort of a physiological difference that it's at the core of it, but that something has shifted in society, um, and that there's a, a broader shift here that is you know not really being addressed by, or even perhaps is not addressable by, by narrow policy sort of attempts. Um, mm. I guess I'd like to sort of pick that apart a little bit because, you know, it's almost like there are two books in here. On the one hand, it's a, it's a books, book by a, uh, uh, a respected uh, uh, Brookings scholar that is actually quite policy- Tamir, that's redundant. <laughs> you don't have to say respected Brookings <laughs> quite, scholar. Right. That's true, Thank that's you, true. Shutting. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, it's, it's extra deference since I'm not a Brookings scholar myself, but it's, it's, uh, um, uh, given that there's, it's almost two books in the sense that, that, that the one book is, is about policy and about things that we can do to, with the policy tools, uh, to address these things. But there's a, a, another subtext to the book, which I, I, I find, um, I'm not sure if it troubled me. I haven't yet wrapped my head around exactly what I think about it. So, you know, hopefully we can work through this a little bit as, as we talk, mm. but it, it's, it's this question of um, mid-century liberal policy attempts to address real deficiencies, uh, real um, equality efficiencies in our society have had knock-on effects um, that are not merely addressable by society, but have rejiggered basically the basic framework of how men and women interact in our society. And it feels like, to a certain extent, there's another argument in your book that men are, are getting screwed there as well. Um, and I guess I'm not fully clear how you approach that part of it. Like I said, mm. there's, the, there's the policy part of it, which is we need to do this, that, and the other thing to have boys catch up and there's an argument, a socioeconomic argument, especially about, about black men and how that needs to be mm -hmm. addressed and how they really get screwed, doubly, triply screwed by a lot of this stuff. But there's this other element of shifts within society that I feel somewhat goes unaddressed in the book, or at least not as tidily addressed, you know, in the last chapter, which is, you know, what can we do about mm. it? Is that fair? Demir, let me push you. What are, I, hmm. Can on. you just finish your thought? So what, what do you think isn't really addressed by, by Richard? Um, I think there, there are many parts in the book where, where uh, I think you, you, very, you put your finger on uh, something very real, which you, you come back to this point that, that men are purposeless in today's society, that... Um, that, you know, traditional gender roles that were predominant, um, and we can talk about how long they've been predominant and how these things shift in history, because, I mean, I, mm. I'm not a historian of this sort of stuff, so I, I don't exactly know, but I think it's an important question. But that, that, that not being sort of called to be the traditional breadwinner and provider um, mm. within society, almost by empowering women, as we have since the beginning of the century, um, we have created, uh, we have made them rightly independent of men to the extent to which they don't need men anymore. Yeah. And as a result, uh, men are unable to, or have 
thus far been unable to cope with that by and large and find a, a role. And that goes beyond policy in a sense, because it's, it's, it's more than just structural. It's, or maybe you would say it's just structural, but it, it yeah. seems like it's less amenable to a policy fix like the ones you, you outlined towards the end of the book. Is that fair? Okay. Uh, well, I think it, it goes back a bit to where Shadi was a moment ago, which is this, uh, this sense of like, is this either a breathtakingly radical book or a really banal book right is this like a wonky like oh my god he's got evaluation studies of technical high schools from connecticut like really that's like glide like is it like is it like a like policy a book to sit up there with the policy or is it like a holy moly this guy's claiming that the entire culture has just been completely transformed in ways that have benched men right and i think that's the tension that that you're getting at there demir i'm going to try and answer your question so um the i do attempt to do justice to those cultural changes that you've just described but to try and do so in a tone that, if not dull, <laughs> is hopefully inviting. Well, right? I just want to not polemical. For, well, for for listeners, for listeners, just the book is not dull. I do want to just sort of get that oh, out of the way. Well, I, I really that's did so find sweet. It... No, there's a couple. Of, there's a couple of bits. There's a couple of bits here. Actually, my wife took out the dull bits. She read. <laughs> she she read some, and there was this kind of bit where she actually this became like a famous thing in our family. She 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 put this comment on one bit. She said, "What did she said? She's painfully wonky." opaque and adds no value and my son and, and she she read this out she read this out at the dinner table and my son looked up from his phone and said wait are you talking about dad that's <laughs> <laughs> what's interesting it's like one of the themes of the book but um but i i here's here's the thing um one is that this cultural shift which is this fundamental change in the economic relations between men and women that you just talked about which was the principal goal of the post-war women's movement to make it marriage a choice not a necessity to allow women to be economically independent to break the chains of dependency between men and women that was the goal and that's what gloria steinem and others said it was and guess what hugely achieved in an incredibly short period of human, like overnight in terms of human history, like amazing, right? Now, that has now asked profound questions as conservatives anticipated it would about the role of men, right? If you make men a choice, not a necessity, then what, is, what do we do with the men? Um, and what do we do with the men has been the question at the heart of most human societies, to be honest, but we've had pretty clear answers for quite a long time. We don't have a clear answer now. So I think everything you've just said is true. And I would say that's a structural challenge. And so I talk about the structures of the education system, the structure of the labor market, but I also talk about the structures of family life. I see family life, gender roles, fatherhood, motherhood as social institutions, therefore part of the structural environment within which people live. And so I see this fundamental alteration at the heart of family relations to be a massive structural change and a huge structural challenge facing men. And so I don't think I duck it. Uh, what I do attempt to do is then say, okay, so what do we do? And what I do is in a fairly boring policy wonky way, talk about paid leave for fathers and more rights. And you might say, ah, yeah, that's not going to do it. You know, it's going to take much more than that. Okay, I agree. But I didn't want to write one of those books, which just hand waves about the need for culture change at the end. We do need culture change, but that should be underpinned by, and to some extent symbolized by public policy 
So I'm not claiming that paid leave and better, you know, a better legal system for unmarried fathers is going to overnight reconstitute the social institution of fatherhood. But I do think that that's the cultural task in front of us. And to some extent, if you write a book in this style and this approach, what I'm doing is I'm inviting this conversation and I'm trying to create space within which we can have this conversation. Can I, can I just follow up on that? You know, <clears throat> is, do you see that, 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 um, I mean, how, how would I put this exactly right? Does cultural change, in the sense that, that I think it's really interesting you said that conservatives saw this coming, or at mm -hmm. least, you know, foreshadowed it in a lot of ways, didn't get everything right, but saw it coming uh, as feminism was rising and, you know, as it was really achieving all of its goals. Um, nevertheless, it's still the cultural changes are in a way unanticipated or not exactly how anyone pushing for these changes would have anticipated them working out more broadly. Do you know what I mean about the sense of anticipated and unanticipated what you, there? What, what I'm getting mean, at is, well, is, is... What do you mean? Can you be specific though? Like, well, give, I, give an example of something that wasn't an anticipated cultural change. Um, the unanticipated, the, the, the broader enemy of men in the sense that, that, that the feminist project was about redressing a historical grievance and uh, injustice for women uh, and, you know, uh, locked down by patriarchy, traditional roles in the family. Mm -hmm. So, and the unintended consequence was, again, perhaps uh, anticipated by some conservative observers, but nevertheless, I would, you know, was, was an unintended consequence. So the question is, well, is, is basically, how does, do, I have a, I, have a, a, I don't a, think, I honestly hmm. don't, I don't think you've read enough uh, conservatives from the 1970s, honestly. <laughs> they, all um, they all saw it coming. Because, well, they they got something. What they what you're right. What they said is they didn't anticipate this kind of enemy, right? This this sense of retreat, and what they anticipated was massive increases in violence. Um, as men were competing with each other, they didn't have anything else to do. They weren't bound into the relationships of family. If you read Gilder and Dench and those folks, like they were, they were saying, "Look, we're going to have a bunch of men who won't have pro, good, good pro-social roles, and they're just going. It's going to be like Mad Max, mm -hmm. basically, mm -hmm. right? It's going to be like these guys marauding around, totally uncivilized, killing each other, killing everybody else, like etc. And precisely the opposite has happened. Rates of violent crime have gone down." over the same period that this has happened. Um, much safer society. And so we do not have, with obvious few exceptions, we don't have marauding bands of violent men as the conservatives predicted. We instead have a bunch of men who've retreated to some extent to the internet. Right. Uh, and they're retreating. So they're not acting out, they're checking out. Now, I think that's, in, it's not as big a problem. I'd rather be in a society where the men are, you know, I'll, I'll stereotype for a moment, where the men are kind of in basement smoking weed, uh, playing video games and looking at porn than one where they're marauding around in violent gangs, for sure. But it doesn't mean there isn't still a problem there. It's just not as bad as the problem that the Conservatives anticipated. But they absolutely anticipated that the question of what does it mean to be a father, what does it mean to be a man will be asked with a new force if the women's movement succeeds. They were absolutely right about that bit. But let me, okay, but let me put a finer point on this because yeah. Demir's pulling his punches for, um, and I maybe I can just be his anger translator. Um, okay. But, um, look, but respectfully, I think, because obviously I'm a respected Brookings scholar, so. <laughs> of course, of course. 
I, I don't think we need to complicate this. Um, a big part of modern liberal society is undoing the traditional role of the father. The historical role is that of a provider. We've alluded to this, but mm -hmm. let's just be very explicit. This is the way it has been for a very long time, maybe not in every society, but in most and throughout most of human history. Um, and this is where I think it's very difficult to address this. Look, I'm all for coming up with policy solutions. Let's do the best we can. But I, I also don't think we should pretend that we can actually solve this. We can close the gap a little bit, but at a basic level, this is what modern society is about, particularly when you have liberal left of center people and parties that dominate not politics necessarily, because in a lot of in a lot of Western democracies we have strong mm. right-wing parties, but in terms of the broader culture in advanced Western societies, this is not it is not acceptable for men to be seen primarily as protectors and providers. And maybe that's that's pro that's for the best on on balance, as, as you argue in the book, because we've had amazing progress in very important areas um, when it comes to empowering women and making sure that women are represented in the workplace and, and in politics and so forth. So I'm, I'm sort of a pessimist in the sense that good things don't go together. So if we have a lot of one good thing, we're probably gonna mm -hmm. have other bad things. And there may not actually be a solution, especially here in the US, where if we're talking about the most well-educated culturally dominant people in our society, they are not going to, as far as I can tell, allow for a situation where there is a cultural shift where we elevate the idea of fatherhood or even mm -hmm. manhood. I don't know if that's the right term. You don't use that word, uh, that that no. word in your book. That's Josh, that's that Josh Hawley's book. Josh Hawley's book is called Manhood coming out next year, so. Oh, I did not actually, I did yeah. not actually know that. Yep. But you do yep. talk very in, in, very passionately about the importance of restoring this sense of the provider, at least to some degree. But how is that gonna happen if our culture, that's just not what, that's not what culturally dominant people are willing to go along with. Well, uh, I mean, I think the, the important thing is to say that provider can re redefined, of course, and, and broadened out. And so let me try to be the optimist to, to your pessimist. The cultural task in front of us is to ensure that there are pro-social roles and scripts for men, especially fathers, that are compatible with gender equality. That's the task. And I agree with you that policy is, has only a, a part to play. And this is much about what we say and how we treat each other. And reconstituting fathers. Fatherhood as a social institution, absent this provider, the, 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 the provider role can still be there, but it's always going to be voluntary, right? Women are twice as likely to file for divorce as men. 40% of breadwinners are now women. 40% of women earn more than typical man, the typical man. So we're in an entirely new world. And so we we either just say, yep, okay, we don't need the men anymore. Let's bench them and thank God for the internet because otherwise they'd be marauding. Um, and that's just like, uh, there's a Rick and Morty episode where the guys are just left down on the planet. I don't know. You guys, do you guys watch Rick and Morty? Mm -mm. No, no. Okay, no. Is that like a cartoon? 
Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's an animated <laughs> thing, but there's there's like a um there, there's a, a whole there's an episode where the men are basically like left down on the planet and they're just barbarians, right? And the women are up on this space station in this kind of gleaming feminist utopia, and it takes the piss out of both. But but the point is simply that like they just use the men. They have this complicated way that they get the sperm to you know, reproduce, which is always the problem with feminist women only utopias is how do you reproduce? Um, and like <laughs> that's one option, but I don't think it's an option that anybody takes seriously. And all the women I know, regardless of their politics, are worried about their sons and their husbands and their fathers, and they're wanting them to do, but they're wanting them to flourish and recognizing that's going to have to be in a different way to their fathers, but also in some ways different to them. There are some differences, and we don't have to go back. And so I would not understate, and maybe this is where Demir's issue is, is that I'm try I'm writing in a tone that doesn't try to sort of send alarm bells ringing about this gigantic crisis and so on but i do think there's a cultural task in front of us i don't think i pull my punches about how the old model of fatherhood has been hollowed out as a byproduct of the welcome economic rise of women and i don't see anybody really even acknowledging the question let alone trying to answer it so let's at least start well, to try and answer yeah. it I mean, well what, if, what if this of course i totally agree but what if in some sense this is the natural state that we've been heading to for centuries or millennia in the sense that patriarchy throughout human history was a subsidy for men who are not as intelligent, perhaps, or emotionally intelligent in certain ways. They're more aggressive. Um, they're less self-disciplined. What if this is the way we always were, and now we're returning to the state of nature in some sense? And like, who's to say we shouldn't just accept this? If this is where, so men end up being in this unfortunate situation, this is who they are. And we don't have parity in most things in life between, um, between any two groups, you take them and you compare them and there is never going to be parity. And this argument is oftentimes used when it comes to um, you know, ethnic groups in a much more controversial way. Um, if you want to, if folks want to maybe extend that into this domain, they can say, well, look, hey, tough, you know, you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And mm -hmm. if, Jordan if boys are falling yeah. behind and if men are falling behind, then either they find a way on their own as individuals to figure that out, or this is, you know, this is the state of nature. Well, Deal with it. I mean, Richard, this, this is helpful of what I was struggling with before. It's, mm -hmm. it's uh, um, you know, earlier you, 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 your rejoinder to Shadi was you're, you, you'll, you'll respond in a more optimistic way. Um, how optimistic are you that, that uh, more targeted policies can um, shift these cultural things, these very complicated cultural things in a predictable way? I guess that's what I was trying to get at earlier, mm. is what's, the, what's your confidence in uh, these particular uh, policy proposals, which, again, I, I, I hesitate to say this, but Shadi's encouraging me not to pull my punches, um, is an attempt to feminize men a bit more, um, to redefine roles and to redefine manhood in a way that is more sociable, more socialized, uh, to befit a more modern, more peaceful post-industrial society that requires more intelligence, more emotional intelligence of people to succeed in. To what extent are you confident that that we can, by twisting these knobs, um, as you say, you know, you wrote a book, uh, not wanting to be polemical, not a Josh Hawley book, 
because I agree <laughs> those are not terribly useful. Um, nevertheless, uh, give me give me a little sense of of you know your your optimism, your epistemological optimism on this. I mean, you could also, uh, to be clear, you could write, you know, the polemic could come from the other side just as strongly too, which is more along the lines of like, yeah, get over yourselves, men. Mm. Um, you know, uh, yeah, maybe we don't need you. Make, prove yourself useful or, or you, know, sh you know, shape up or ship out, basically, could be the other way to think about it. So, look, I'm, I'm a Brookings Institution scholar, so obviously I believe that the right public policy can solve all of our problems <laughs> uh, as long as it's correctly evaluated. Um, so, like, I don't want to overstate the role of policy, but I do I do think that the cultural task in front of us, which is to say something other than just, yeah, well, you had your turn, you know, shape up, is actually not good enough. We have a cultural responsibility to find pro-social roles for everybody, including men and women, and to the extent that there are differences between them, say between mothers and fathers, that recognizes those differences without making one better or worse than the other, without making one redundant, without benching one group or the other, because no one really wants that. And so I think like at the risk of sounding much more grandiose than the book does, one of the things we have to face is... This is a cultural task that has been laid before us by the success of the women's movement. And the answer is neither a kind of Hawley-esque celebration of adolescent masculinity and a, some hope that we can turn back the clock, nor is it to say, well, the future's androgyny. You know, there's no difference between men and women anyway, because I've got to tell you, having raised three boys, neither of those messages are very helpful in terms of equipping them for the world that they're going to encounter, which is one of equality, but also one where there are some differences between them. So I'll give you one example. Right now, 40% of births take place outside marriage in the US, rising, much bigger for certain groups than others, especially those with less education. In every single US state, a child born outside marriage presumed sole custody to the mum. The father has to prove paternity and go to court to get access to his kid. Now, that's just, I want to change that policy. Uh, it's not true if you're married, by the way. Marriage does a, divorce laws are pretty good. But if you're unmarried, which is this massive group and growing group now, the central message that public policy sends to fathers is, well, we don't even know if you are the dad. And by the way, we're only after you for child support. Now, will changing that policy overnight reinvent fatherhood? No, but it will be a step in the right direction. And it's a dereliction of cultural duty, I'll say it that strongly, to not be thinking about these roles and finding positive ways to have those roles and not just run silent on it. Because right now we have a whole set of structures which are going the other way. We are simply failing to update our institutions for the massive shock, positive shock, that the women's movement has presented. And most ordinary people out there raising kids in relationships, in marriages, are absolutely engaged in this cultural task. So why don't we help them? Hmm. But what about the ones who aren't married or don't? So, I mean, one of the shocking statistics that you mentioned is that fewer than one in five American adults think that marriage is essential to living a fulfilling life. That is, that's mm -hmm. crazy to me. 82% of women aged 25 to 34 say it is okay for an unmarried female to have and raise a child. Um, and maybe that's a little bit different because okay doesn't have a strong normative value, but it's clear that there is a rapidly declining value attached to marriage. And if a lot of your argument depends on the institution of marriage, 
then doesn't your argument run into a bit of a problem if there is this generational shift, or actually not even generational, mm -hmm. it seems to be across the entirety of American society to say nothing of God knows what, like Sweden, Denmark, or France. But mm. um, if if marriage is the glue, and and we can also dig a little bit deeper, marriage tends to be the glue in more religious societies. And we know that religious affiliation and, and observance and belief is declining precipitously, even in the US, which used to be the one outlier among advanced Western democracies. So it's even happening here. Um, so religion, yeah. marriage, there are these deeper structural things that you need, and there's no obvious way to create a religious awakening or specifically a Christian awakening in America today, unless you have an idea. But that seems that seems to be a major uh, a major factor that is that's definitely not in my book uh for sure that's that could be a, you know, maybe that'll be another book but um no i i i think Shadia, with respect that you're mis you're mischaracterizing my position um uh, and this is where a lot a lot of i lose a lot of the social conservatives i'm absolutely not relying on marriage as the future marriage is effectively in the rearview mirror culturally speaking. Marriage was the glue, but it's no longer the glue. And marriage was the glue because you had a man who was going to be the provider. You had a woman who had to get married because she wanted to raise kids and she needed to live. And so marriage was a necessity and she raised kids. And the thing about that, that system was it was pretty stable because they're kind of glued together. It was pretty effective because very clear divisions of labor. It wasn't bad for kids because it was quite a stable family life. And everyone kind of knew their role, the social scripts. And my own parents, right? They had pretty clear scripts to follow, right? It, was, it wasn't, of course, they were very equal and so on, but it was like it, the world, it sort of worked. It worked. There was one fatal flaw, which was it was incredibly unfair to women because it put them in a position of dependency. And that was the central insight of the women's movement and that's what they went for, and they successfully dismantled it. And there is no going back to a model of the family which is based on marriage as a relationship of economic dependency, at least over any kind of long-term period. It's done. But I didn't it's say gone. marriage as a relationship of economic dependency. I just said marriage generally. I mean, okay. presumably there's a well, way I, to But have... I don't argue that. I don't argue for that. I don't. I mean, it's just, this is like the right, oh, let's have a marriage bonus in the tax system. I'm going to say, no, let's not have a marriage bonus in the tax. It was literally only Hawley's only proposal. Um, it's like, f f f there's so much wrong with that that I, I can't even start. But, but no, I actually think we've got to, we'd like, it's time to accept that, that that version of marriage is gone. Uh, gone. Uh, and good, because it was fatally flawed by its incredible injustice. <laughs> but... That doesn't mean fathers don't matter. So my argument is that we have to create a much stronger independent social institution of fatherhood. Fatherhood used to be bundled into marriage so that husband and father was virtually like went together, right? Now that's not true, but it doesn't mean that fatherhood doesn't matter. And so my argument is not reconstitute marriage. It is rebuild fatherhood independent so that even if you're not married, in fact, arguably, especially if you're not married, you still matter as a dad. And that from that, a lot of my policies about paid leave and stuff flow. But I'm leaning very hard into fatherhood. A lot of conservatives do not agree with me about this. They think the only way you're going to get dads to be dads is through marriage. 
And I think the only way you're going to restore marriage, if you care about that, is through fatherhood. But more importantly, I don't really care about that. What I care about is parenting, whether you're married or not. And that's the world we're in, whether you like it or not. I mostly like it. A lot of social conservatives don't. But that's the world that the women's movement brought us, which is marriage is a choice. Hmm. Uh, that's that's helpful, Richard. You know, I mean, in in some ways, it it, it uh, assuage is one of those sort of things that I was not fully sure of uh, in the book. Um, to a large extent, because um, I think it's easy to read the book on the one hand as a, as a book of crisis, like so many other books that have come before it, and, uh, and then fall into the, temp the conservative temptation about the sort of, well, you know, without rolling back, there, there's nothing to it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sympathetic to this, this idea that it's not going back, but what do you say to conservatives? And I want to just preface that I'm not a big fan of these like happiness studies and, you know, when, when measuring mm. happiness, I, I find this, this really problematic in a lot of ways. But you, you get this sort of rhetoric among social conservatives in any case, that um, they point to the fact that, that, that marriages are more stable uh, among the wealthy, that it's mm -hmm. become a luxury good, but it's still a good and it's still it's desired. They point to, there's countless articles written in The Atlantic about the misery of modern dating, uh, about how women are getting really the short end of the stick uh, in modern dating, how they are unhappy, how doing the Sheryl Sandberg lean in, uh, women chase this, they, they are following a social script. Uh, I really like that, that. I think it's a really good way to think about social scripts and writing these. So a new social script has been written for women, for young women, mm -hmm. they're following it. And then there's a sense of unhappiness. And I think a lot of social conservatives would then point to and say, well, they're missing um, that kind of, and I guess they would point to something innate in, in women and something innate in the male-female relationship, uh, that there's something ineffably manly uh, that women desire and want, and it's been taken away by a lot of these things, and that there's an emptiness there right now, that it's a broader crisis of this kind of meaning. Now, I just want to say, I'm not... I've never been convinced by this, but I want to know, I'd mm -hmm. like to hear how you react to that. I thought yeah. Demir was going to say, I've, I've never been married. I've never been but, married, it's um, true. So we should also clarify to perhaps new listeners that we are speaking of that of which we do not, of yeah. which we know not. Two bachelors be, so talking of us. to an author of uh, of a book on 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 on, on men uh, who's raised children. We haven't. So I mean, yes. I think that's a huge yes. problem for us. But in any case, yes. so. I, no, I have, you know, I have, I have some experience of these institutions. Um, but I, like, again, I think it's, it's one of these things where when you, like, if you, if you play this conversation back, like to most people, right, what they're saying, what they're saying, uh, are you saying that women who are heterosexual actually really like the idea of having a long-term companionship with a guy? The answer is yes. But I'm not sure that's a very shocking finding mm. or the other way around. I mean, like long-term companionship is hugely important for, for human well-being. If you, if you are attracted to people of the opposite sex, then probably makes sense to be with someone of the opposite sex to the extent that like actually yeah, having sex is important to you, then, you know, probably going to want to have sex with someone of the opposite sex. And so like, again, if you go out into the ordinary world and say to people, you're going to be happier if you form a good long-term relationship with someone who you're physically attracted to. They're going to be like, well, thank you. 
thank you, Doctor Hamid, uh, or, or whatever. Right? <laughs> thank you for that break for that incredibly shocking insight from Social Science Citadel, <laughs> the Brookings Institution. You know. Uh, so on the one hand, it's like blindingly obvious that's what people want, and if there are things getting in the way of that, we should try and figure out what those things are. And yes, it turns out that women who are attracted to men want to be with someone who's a man and might be a man in various obvious ways, and by the way, vice versa, and that's okay. That's not incompatible with gender inequality. But come back to this point about marriage, and I've written a piece in the Atlantic a long time ago about marriage, which is, I think, to understand what's happening to marriage in now, we have to get our heads around the fact that the most economically powerful women in the history of the world, college-educated American women, right? I'll, I'll, that's, if you accept that simplification, right? College-educated American women are arguably among the most economically powerful women. They are the most likely to get and stay married. Right. Right. What's going on there? Because that is not what anybody expected. That is not what the feminist movement of the 70s expected. As marriage became a choice with growing economic uh, independence, surely fewer women would get married. And as you go back in time, women with more education were less likely to get married. Now it's flipped the other way around. The more educated you are, the more likely you are to be married. So you've got these super educated women with fantastic careers. They're the ones who are getting married. Now, social conservatives say, you see, they want a traditional marriage. See, the, the elite, they're doing it. No, they're not. It might be marriage, but it's nothing like the marriage we had 50 years. It is based on a profoundly different set of values. One is egalitarianism between the two. And secondly, it's based on parenting. Modern marriage is much more like a joint venture for parenting and human capital formation in kids. And that's what upper middle class marriage in America is about now. And by the way, I think it's good. And marriage is a useful commitment device for that. And we've seen the rise in gray divorce, which is parents staying together till the kids have gone and then getting divorced. If you needed more evidence that, that marriage was becoming more of a joint venture for, for the development of their children's human capital, that's pretty good evidence. So we have to understand that even if it looks like marriage from traditional marriage from the outside, I trust, tell me, I, and here I do speak from experience as well as social science, it is nothing like the marriage of my parents. Hmm. Can I ask Not you a, um, may I ask a personal question, Richard? You may ask it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, um, well, I, I do, okay, first of all, I did find out something new about you through reading the book, and I thought this was bonkers because i have never heard of this game that apparently young boys play and i had to read it like three times to make sure i was understanding it correctly but apparently in britain i guess um that you know young risk-taking boys they play this game where they run into a highway with trucks coming mm -hmm. forth mm -hmm. and who the way that you win this game is to be the last one who crosses the highway. In other words, the one who's closest to being hit by the truck but survives mm -hmm. is the winner. And so I just want to mm – -hmm. that was like a little personal tidbit. I was not familiar with this game. Uh, maybe we don't have it where I grew up in Pennsylvania. But, but just to say that personal experience matters because presumably if you've gone through such a life-affirming experience – such as that, it does sort of clarify matters. But, um, well, to be clear, Shani, I mean, I was always first to cross. I mean, I was like, okay, they're like, <laughs> someone would say, go, right? The truck's coming, and someone would say, okay, starting from now, right? We'd all line up. And then it was literally like, who was, who was willing to wait till the last possible moment? 
Um, and I would literally just go straight away. I, mean, I was I, like, okay, fine. And let me just add. And that's you. why you're here with us today. But, exactly. That's why you're exactly. <laughs> the fact. But also, there. Are, I mean, it's like chicken, right? People play. It's very similar to like uh, I've explained to America. Like, yeah, you mean chicken, and it's kind of like that. But but oh, Shai, yeah, you know yeah. the, the fact the fact that you haven't had this experience, I mean, just tells us something about how culturally bounded a lot of these are. I mean, I'll just say, you know, I, I don't think this is necessarily a broad cultural thing. But I remember I only went to elementary school uh, in the Balkans in in Yugoslavia back then uh, for one year for first grade, and I remember at lunch break all the boys would go outside and throw rocks at each other. Literally, we'd mm -hmm. like line up and 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 have rock fights, like pelting each other with pebbles and sometimes larger than pebbles and dodging behind things. I mean, so yeah, you know, I mean, I, it's, it's, uh, that, that, that's male behavior that I just don't think is ever yes. countenanced in more, in more civilized societies. And, and they did let you, us um, do this. Shady, Shady, did you do, uh, ever do car surfing? Did you do that? Oh, car surf? Do you For know, Arabic study? Cars... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I meant. Car, wait, wait, I was... car surfing. Right, where you stand on the roof of a car while your friend drives it and then oh, stand on oh, it for as long as okay, you can. Okay, I totally before... misunderstood that. OJ, just to no, clarify no. to people, um, there, there's a program called CASA, C-A-S-A, which is a center yeah, we'll for Arabic study abroad. <laughs> yeah, we'll you... link to it in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I, I am not familiar with this car surfing. Car. Another thing, okay, it's... but it, it, it does make, it does sort of convey, I think an important point and maybe also as a, a boy and then a, and then um, a teenager and then a man raised by immigrant parents, there's maybe a little bit of a difference in terms of what we experience. I mean, in terms of the emphasis on education and like, you know, I, I, the idea that you could just like play video games at home was not something I was really aware of. Like there, you just, you didn't fuck around like that. Like my dad, he got a PhD. It was just assumed that, you know, that's what you do. You get a PhD. Now, to be fair to my dad, he is he didn't realize that, you know, a PhD in political science was like a viable career path. But he was still mm. happy once I was able to explain it to him. Like, oh, you can do your PhD on, you know, studying religious movements in the Middle East, whatever. But, but this is all just a, di a digression from what I really wanted to get mm. to, which is... So we know each other, Richard. Um, we are colleagues at Brookings. We were part of a liberalism reading group. And that's how actually we met in real life for the first time. I just generally assumed that you were vaguely right of center because my, and this is maybe my bias, like anyone who takes culture seriously, there's probably a better chance than not that they lean to the right. I wish it wasn't the case. And I've you know, I've been vocal about the need for mm. folks on the left side of the spectrum to be culturally literate and religiously literate. Just, you know, it's difficult. But mm. but I think that when I was reading your book, and I'm going to be straight up with you here, I thought to myself, Richard is really trying hard to be even-handed. You even have these sort of dueling chapters. Here's the problem with how the left views men. Then next chapter, here's the problem with how the right addresses the crisis of men and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that. And that's actually probably the best way to reach the audience that we, you know, that you want to reach for sure. But I, I couldn't help but thinking that 
like, wait, is this a brief for cultural conservatism? And let me, let me just explain. I, I know that's hmm. okay. So if we take, let's, if we look at both sides here, um, so to speak, the problem with liberals is different than the problems that conservatives have because conservatives at least acknowledge that there is a crisis in the first place. They actually think this is something that is a problem and perhaps it can be addressed in certain ways. The problem with liberals, they don't weaponize it the way Josh Hawley does or all these like cynical people, Trump, you know, probably not an expert hmm. in fatherhood or being married, but he would weaponize this. He's and an expert see in being that. married and, for sure. Oh, oh sorry, mm -hmm. very good point. So of course, people weaponize this stuff on the right and they use it for political gain, but that's different mm -hmm. than the left, which doesn't even acknowledge that this is a thing, or at least, um, so, my guess hmm. is that it's easier for you to go to right of center folks and tell them, hey guys, I'm kind of pissed off that you weaponize this against Democrats and you use it cynically in this way. But let me tell you some policies that will actually address the problem and they would probably be more likely to listen to you because they actually understand that this is something that is a crisis where I think it's just a harder case to make with people who don't even think there's a male problem. They think that men are the problem. They think that there's this thing called toxic masculinity that perpetuates everything. They have this, they might have a phrase like male privilege. They might say, well, okay, there's a third option. Forget about gender. Why not just be non-binary? The fact that we're moving outside of the straitjacket of gender is actually mm. a sign of progress. And I think that is, that is for better or worse, where a big chunk of the influential folks on the left are going. And I, I want to take one issue, and I know there's a lot here, but you say at one point in the book that, you know, uh, the trans rights debate is not actually a super relevant one for people's everyday lives because 99, at least, I think you say something like 90, at least 99% of, of people are something like cis heterosexual or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. But in the new generation, and there's some really interesting survey data on this, a growing number of people under the age of 20, whatever generation that is, consider themselves non-binary. They don't identify with one of the genders. And this is a profound shift where we're not even talking about are men good or are men bad? We're talking about there are three or four other options. I think if I recall 20% of um, pre-college um, kids apparently identify as LGBTQ+, and that includes a lot of other things, but non-binary mm -hmm. is a growing portion of that. So I know there's a lot there, but I just wanted to make sure that we just address this head on. Okay. Uh, so I, I think I'm going to just start where you ended and try and sort of go back up the chain of your thinking, but but uh, I'm not sure I got all of it. So please, please do kind of come back to me. So I think the first thing is to say, yeah, there's been this huge increase in uh, you know, LGBTQ identification. Um, that's not the primary focus of, of this book. And one reason why that's less of a problem for a book about men is because the increase among men has just been so much less than for women. If you actually unpack that number, the one you just gave, sure, there's an increase in non-binary from an incredibly small base, but it's almost entirely driven by young women who identify as bisexual. 
right? Uh, that is the major cause of that. Uh, and we can obviously talk about that, but it's probably for a different kind of podcast. But by and large, it is just an expansion, a massive increase in the number of women who describe themselves as bisexual. Very little increase among men, right? So men are still much more likely to describe themselves as cis and heterosexual than, than women are. And that's who my my book is aimed at. And the truth is that once you get, like, once you get outside the, the, the these bubbles that we all kind of live in, like, there aren't very many people who really think that there aren't different problems facing men and women. And even the most liberal person isn't ready to stop measuring the gender pay gap anytime soon, right? But the very basis upon which you measure the gender pay gap is between men and women. And so until and unless we're ready to start saying, yeah, we don't, we can't measure the gender pay gap because there's no gender. And I don't hear anybody sensible on the left saying that, by the way. Then I think that there's a danger we just take these very, I mean, microscopically small groups of people and imagine that that's the conversation that's kind of really going on. And I don't deny that there's obviously different, different elites have different powers in different places. But I've been really struck by the fact that even like on the, you know, Michelle Goldberg has a piece out in the Times in, uh, on my uh, book, and she's very critical of it here and there about a piece in the Salon, et cetera. And by and large, there isn't, uh, there isn't this sense of like, how dare he assume a binary? I mean, there isn't. Um, and, I, and I will say that I think part of the problem is to somehow posit yet another false choice, which is either it's everything's binary and by God, you're going to fit into one of them one way or the other. And saying, look, there's the spectrum, but most people are clustered towards the ends of those spectrums. And there are some people who aren't and some people who transition. And by the way, think about the, what word the transition means, right? from A to B. Um, and most people are kind of fine about that. And so I've been really struck by the fact that most of the conversations about this are much more open than I think you would expect if all you do is look at libs of TikTok and read the New York Times opinion page. Okay, but... Uh, I didn't answer the rest the... of what you said. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Let, let me come back to this. A cultural conservatism, right? For, you, said I, you said you assumed I was centre-right because I talk about culture. Well, I'm, as you know, I'm Mill's biographer. And if you try and find me a 19th century liberal like Mill or Tocqueville uh, who didn't think about culture all the time, and so liberalism properly defined is borderline obsessed with issues of culture and character and social norms because they know that that's the essence of a kind of, the only way to have a successful liberal pluralist society is through strong cultural norms, so it's just a canard to say that liberals aren't interested in that stuff. It's not to say some okay, reason liberals aren't that's not how, that That's not what... That's not what liberalism is, though, now. I mean, we can talk about, in in theory, the way it's supposed to be this idealized version of classical liberalism. I'm talking more about, you know, in, in practical politics, what you just described isn't, to me, where liberals are at. But I take your point that if we look historically, there is, there's a legacy. A lot of them are. So, look, if, if here's what I'll say. If taking culture seriously... <laughs> makes you a conservative guilty as charged there's a clip for someone to use right <laughs> i just think that's ob but it's so self-evidently nonsense and by the way in other cases people will take culture very seriously so cultures like, think about issues like microaggressions the climate of workplaces and so on that's all about culture it's all about the sort of social ethos within which people work. And so I think the truth is that everybody takes culture seriously. It's just that they're selective about which bits of culture they really want to focus on. And so having cultural institutions, thinking about culture, 
is, I think, a task for, for everybody. And anybody that denies the importance of culture isn't, I, I, don't, I don't think it's conservative to think that at all. In fact, in some ways, the sort of adolescent pussy grabbing uh, masculinity we see on display from the right is in some ways, to, is incredibly uncultured. And I mean that in a very specific way, not in the way people say, oh, Trump's so uncultured. What they mean by that is that he doesn't know how to hold his knife properly or doesn't eat the right cheese or I don't know, whatever. They mean. They're being snobs, basically. They eat, he eats McDonald's, right? So he's uncultured. No, no, no. His steak's, uncultured his steak well done. Yes, exactly. That's the worst I mean, of honestly, all. Uh, uh, obviously, he's an uncultured board, but he's uncultured in a much deeper sense than that, which is that the truth is that to become a cultured person is to become mature. And it's to recognize how your own nature has to be accommodating of other people's natures, how to conduct yourself in the world, how to adapt to norms. That's what it means to be cultured, is to be grown up. And Trump is not a grown up. And too much of this, the adolescent masculinity we see on display is the opposite, is the opposite of the kind of culture we should be talking about. By the way, there is an opening there for conservatives. There's a massive opening for liberals to start talking about this stuff. I mean, really just an open goal. Just talk about it a bit. Um, but there's a massive goal for the right, too, which is to say, yes, there are issues about masculinity in men, and we can help to re-script a good role for masculinity, but they're not going to get there through the adolescent antics of people like Trump. Richard, how do you do scripting? How, I guess I keep coming back to this. Hmm. Um, how, how, do, how does one do that? Well, I'm going to start. I'm going to start with public policy, which I realize is just a kind of reflex from here. But I honestly do think that laws... Laws are cultural signals too, and policies are cultural signals as well. And so I do think that if you're trying to write a script, say, for a modern institution of fatherhood, well, let's look at the laws around fatherhood. And I've already talked about some of yeah. the ways in which you know, fathers are. So scripting it that way, for sure. I also think just being willing to talk about the importance of those people. Think about the speech Barack Obama. I talk about this, but Barack Obama gave a speech in 2008, quite a famous speech now, on the importance of fathers and fatherhood. Then he went into the White House and he, you couldn't get him to talk about it again because of the fear of what that would mean. And it would be seen to be stigmatizing of single parents. Then Trump gets into the White House. And again, people are saying, great, you can talk about fatherhood and, and modern. And no, you can't for different reasons. Mm. So we've had, we, we, so we've, there's been a, a, a real opportunity lost there, I think, for Obama. Um, and obviously we weren't getting it from Trump, but to actually simply, simply talking about things is important. And I think to take something like fatherhood seriously and to support fathers. And you can imagine President using the, the bully pulpit to do that, supported by policy. And even this conversation we're having now, cultures don't generally change as a result of like one public policy dropped from on high, much so we'd like to believe it to be the case. They actually can change as a result of millions of conversations and changes that we all make in our own lives. Cultures, they're created by this kind of conversation, frankly. And so actually, I think to that extent, you could see my book as an attempted cultural intervention in and of itself. Mm. To what extent, to what extent um, do you figure then, uh, you know, the conservative reaction uh, is a sentimental one, and maybe that's its appeal. Yeah. I mean, that's always been it's been said about conservatism in many ways, right? Uh, was it? I mean, there's a trilling one, the uh, irritable mental gestures, but but that there's <laughs> a, a, a sentimental kind of. Um, I think yeah, nostalgia. A nostalgia, but it's more than nostalgia mm. in the sense that you know what struck me when you were describing marriage earlier, modern marriage, um, as as building social capital for your children, and then these gray divorces and things like that. Um, the extent to which those things uh, are perhaps true and observable, but uh, whether the impulse 
for conservatism feeds into uh, a deeply romantic sort of sense of what uh, a relationship between mm. a man and a woman yeah. might be. And, yeah, that, that's, that, and that's, that's what we're losing yeah. in modernity somehow. That kind of... Yeah, well, uh, look, here's what I think. I think that... The, I was very interested by this data point recently, that there's this been this huge increase in the number of young women reading romance novels. Hmm. I don't know if you saw this. Mm -mm. Um, no. And I, I read it on NPR, um, and it was so interesting. Like, only NPR could do this. I could say there's been this huge increase, like, young women really reading this kind of a lot of romance novels. Um, and then, of course, in, as I said, in the way that only NPR could do this, say, and the problem with it is that, you know, there aren't enough writers of color. There are too many white women writing these books. Um, and, and it's too too much of it's heterosexual, but okay, fine. So, but for me, the most interesting data point was the fact that among young women, there is this kind of real appetite for romance. And here I'm just going to go way beyond any kind of data points or evidence that I've got, which is it is perfectly reasonable to want a world of absolute, of, of real equality between men and women, and still to want a degree of romance, which is partly dependent on some of the kind of excitement that there is in the differences between men and women, right? Mm. We, like androgyny is not sexy by and large. And so I do think this sense of like, can we have romance in a world of equality? Well, the answer to that has to be yes. Otherwise you just end up with Tinder or androgyny or whatever else. And so I, I wonder if there isn't something to that. The the attempt to say, oh, it used to be so great back in the old day, let's, let's roll back the clock. That is obviously wrong and immoral on the right. But to the extent that there are people who are saying, you know, like there's, there's a lot I don't know if you have you had Christine Ember. You must have had her of on course, talk about her book. Of course, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I so. it was and great. Classic interest, episode. Interesting. I mean, interesting stuff around like what's the what is what is the romantic relationship like now between men and women? And you have thoughtful people like Christine and others really thinking this stuff through. It's not an area I it's an area I largely avoid in the book for reasons we could maybe talk about. But I think that there's something there's something to that, which is this sense of that we can we can. We can have romance and equality. And if you're going to make a choice between the two, then that's a pretty dark world. So yeah, but but again, I, I just... Okay, so I think I brought this up to Christine as well. Um, she doesn't really focus on policy. That's not the objective of her book. Mm. But And we'll include a link to the show notes. If you guys have not listened to our classic Christine Emba episode, <laughs> you are in for quite a treat. But... I, Look, I'm I like the way things are in the sense that I I wouldn't want to live under a different kind of regime. So whether it's Catholic integralists, um, evangelicals or Islamist parties, um, I I kind of just want to live in America as it is or maybe as it was a few years ago, depending on how we want to look at that. Mm -hmm. But. But I think that I've just come to terms with the fact that once once liberalism, if we think about it in the more ideological sense, so and and we talked to Francis Fukuyama about this in a recent episode, mm. you know, you, you can't undo those things. And there are going to be negative outcomes. And and I just don't know if we can have both. So you say, well, romance and equality, we should be able to have both. Yeah, with a lot of guys mm. and God willing, a growing number of guys, you can have both. But in real, but in practice, it seems like people struggle 
to contain multitudes. And I made this joke on Twitter last <laughs> yeah, night when I was I reading saw the that, book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I so for I'll, and we'll include a link to this tweet in the show notes. I thought it was amusing, but not everyone likes my sense of humor. <laughs> but I, I made some comment that, oh, you know, I started reading Richard Reeves's book, um, of Boys and Men. And oh, my God, I already found an error on page two. And it was Richard saying people can hold two thoughts at once. And I was joking, well, obviously people can hold two or more thoughts at once, but in a, in a more serious sense, it is more challenging than one would expect in mm -hmm. practice. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder... Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I, 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 look, okay. I do think that there's the thing about, the thing about very constrained roles and very restricted choices is that kind of easy to follow, right? Like if, it, the, if you have a very strong social script, incredibly prescriptive social roles, the nice thing about that is you don't have to think too much, right? You don't have to negotiate. You don't have to figure this. You don't have to contain multitudes. And so it is, it is a necessary curse of more liberal societies that they do require us to think multitudes. They do require us to negotiate. It's hard work, right? It's much harder work. No question about that. And so for people who want an easy life, wouldn't it be great for someone just to tell you what to do rather than having to figure it out for yourself? So sure, that's always been a price that you pay. In fact, there's this great line. I think it's, I can't remember the novel now, but it's one of the Trollop novel. Which novel was it where somebody goes to, um, this, this wife goes to her husband and says, I've been reading John Stuart Mill. You're supposed to question all your own thoughts all the time. And this guy says, oh, I don't want to do, I just want a quiet life. <laughs> and anybody that wants, anybody that wants a quiet life, yeah, probably liberalism is not for you, right? Go find yourself a nice theocracy tuck yourself into or a patriarchy to tuck yourself into and then you have a quiet life you have a very boring constrained oppressive life but so yes you do have to think two thoughts at once it is difficult and we are currently in this very very interesting moment where because of the profound restructuring of economic relationships between men and women which we've been talking about a lot that has had all kinds of consequences for the way we interact with each other physically, for how we interact with each other in terms of family life, in the workplace. I mean, the workplace has been completely transformed in the last 40 years. So yeah, hell yeah. There's a lot of challenges right now, but I'm incredibly optimistic as I watch my own boys negotiate it as they're growing up. And as I see, like, we're very adaptable, but it's difficult to transition. And so what I don't but, like is the sense of like, oh, well, we need to go back or this is all too difficult. It's just, a, as you said a moment ago, it's a byproduct of an otherwise positive social change. Good things come with hard things. And so what you do is amplify the good and try to tackle the hard things. So what you said about liberalism is fascinating because usually the critique of liberalism is that it's thin gruel, is that it's boring. It doesn't actually provide enough meaning and excitement. And there's that classic, I guess it's a Hitler quote about the need for struggle that pe or maybe it's Orwell paraphrasing, I can't even remember, but it's one of those quotes where, oh, people desire struggle all the time. And then how can, yeah. You know, that sort of thing. But it's interesting that you sort of turned that on its head and you're suggesting here that a quiet, boring life is one to be had under religious patriarchy and liberal liberalism is inherently exciting. Um, and I suppose there's different ways of seeing it. I, I personally, one of the reasons I like liberalism is because I want to be left alone. I don't want like people to fuck you with You do my want a business. quiet life. Yeah. 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 So it's interesting. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, but that's I, not look, true though. When it comes when it comes to it, Charlie, you say that, but actually the truth is that you're constantly having to engage with people who have very different views to you. You can't tuck yourself away sufficiently 
to kind of just you know for to, for Shadi to only encounter the world according to Shadi, right? You can't do that. And so as you enter out into the into the world, into the you are going to encounter all kinds of difference, all kinds of challenge, and you're going to have people living very differently to you, challenging you. You're going to have to you're negotiating different kinds of relationship with people. You don't know what the rules are for some of those relationships, and especially if it's changing very quickly, yeah, it's messy. It's difficult. It's hard work. You use, I think it is more exciting, but I'm a liberal, right? So, of course, I would say that, wouldn't I? I'm selecting into that kind of society. But anybody that claims it isn't hard work just isn't paying attention. And particularly if you have a shock to the system, like the one we've had in kind of recent decades, like women's liberation, arguably the greatest liberation in human history, the idea that that isn't going to have some knock-on consequences and make life a bit tougher to negotiate for a while is for the birds. But that's... Honestly, that's the price you pay for liberty. And if we're not willing to pay it, then we shouldn't live in liberal societies. So, Richard, you know, maybe this is a, a, a good way to sort of get at something else that's not a prominent subtext in the book, but it, it, it makes an appearance, I think, once or twice, um, which is, uh, again, getting back to uh, and taking the point that none of these things are set in stone, but the, the biological differences uh, that, that, you know, at least one can make some assertions about uh, women having an easier time at developing uh, emotional uh, IQ uh, compared to women. And, you know, uh, what you just, yeah. well, sorry, for men. And, and what you said yeah. just now about, you know, the, the, the liberal living liberal societies, it, it requires one in many ways to develop that emotional IQ. Mm. Um, the, the, the flip side of that is that, you know, insofar as that there's a crisis of men, insofar as that there are men being left behind that are unable or finding it difficult or challenging and are un and at this point are unable to actually uh, navigate this, um, they are turning to illiberal uh, uh, outlets. In fact, mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there's an argument, uh, I think, again, made in passing in the book that, that it's it's a lot of the turn to populism has been, in fact, driven by uh, by men. Um, mm -hmm. That 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 men are fleeing from, from liberalism. That men uh, do sort of want crave this kind of hierarchy, this settled life. Uh, are being offered um, a script and comfort there uh, that that just isn't on offer in liberalism. Now, I take your point that you know the liberal the liberal challenge that you're putting forth in this book is we need to write these scripts, but um, to what extent then? How far do you take that? Uh, you know, hmm. how far do you want to take that 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 crisis of men and the political crisis and liberalism that we're having right now? Do you do you do you see that as a very strong connection, or it's incidental and only partly overlapping? Say a little bit about yes. that. Yes. So I think I think that attitudes towards gender, and to some extent gender itself, are an important part of the story about the rise in some of the the reactionary populist movements that we see so it's not just that you know, we know that you know trump won in 2016 with the biggest the biggest gender gap in exit polling recent exit polling history um biden won a few more white college educated men back in 2020 which is why he won but yeah we're seeing these big gender gaps in lots in lots of different places but it's also attitudes towards gender and so this idea of sort of male dislocation to put it politely or male grievance to put it more provocatively definitely fueling some of these movements that we're seeing and not just on the part of men but sometimes on the part of, of the women who live with those men or around those men so i do see it as a big as part of i think part of the populist story has to engage with some of these concerns that there are around gender the problem is that it is reactionary in the in i think the proper sense of that term which is that just reacting against 
challenges of modernity, both in the economy, in society, and obviously by the women's movement. And it's a reaction against that. But it doesn't really offer very much other than just the sort of temporary pleasure of feeling good about reacting, raging against those problems, rather than providing some kind of positive solution. So what I think is correct in the sort of right-wing reception of this stuff is say there's something there, right? There is the reason why people flock to Jordan Peterson or, or are voting this way or whatever. There's something, there's a there there. There's a real issue and a concern there, which is not being picked up as much on the left. The problem is that all that leads to is a, yeah, and it's the fault of all those feminists on the left because they hate men and, you know, vote for me, which, as I said, even if it feels good for a while, it doesn't really help men to negotiate this world. And... I don't think that there's anybody who has a good a good way to turn back time, even if they wanted to. And and so I think in some ways it ends up being more irresponsible because they're raising the issue, but then just turning it into reactionary rage, which doesn't actually help those men deal with the situation at hand, which is, guess what? Your wife earns more than you. Guess what? You're going to have to look up or whatever the situation is. We ain't going to turn back the clock. And so that's what I don't like about the way that the, the right then weaponize it to use that verb again it is purely reactionary uh so they're right in terms of picking up on the what's happening but they're wrong in terms of where they take it whereas the left as charlie just identified the problem there is that they don't really want to acknowledge there's a problem hmm. i do want to just introduce hmm. um a complication i think richard you're, you're right broadly about the far right but it's interesting that in some in a couple countries and you know denmark in Denmark, uh, Sweden um, come to mind, they'll often argue that they are the true, the far right here, that they're the true defenders of liberalism against Muslim immigrants who wanna take women back. Actually, Marine Le Pen would mm. also probably fit in this category. And it's interesting that when you have to choose between being anti-Muslim and emphasizing gender hierarchy, oftentimes the far right will prefer um, the anti-Muslim part of it. So there's an interesting tension there because, I mean, they would say that it's actually Muslim minorities who are coming in recently who um, support these gender hierarchies. So it can be a little, you know, it's mm. interesting how you have these different layers that, that have to be unpacked. But that was just like a little a little small side mm. note. I'm, I, you did bring up Jordan Peterson and you do mention him in the book, and I think we would be remiss if we didn't address him. I mean, not to say that he's the elephant in the room, but I think that he has been able to tap into something very powerful. And I didn't realize, I knew he had sold millions of copies, but the fact that it's over 5 million copies of his books, uh, of his book, 12 Rules for Life, I mean, that's remarkable. So clearly there mm -hmm. is a demand for this that is not being met. And God willing, Richard, your book will sell, um, if not Absolutely. necessarily in the millions. <laughs> At least that many. At least that many. No, but I mean, but I think it's great to see that your, bu your book has only been out for about a week and it has struck a tremendous chord. I mean, everyone I see is talking about Andrew Sullivan, David Brooks. I mean, you can't you can't be on tw Matt Iglesias. Um, mm -hmm. I saw he was just like tweeting this thing about how there aren't enough male psychologists. In fact... Yeah. Apparently, there's barely any, like, it, you know, it's really challenging to find a male psychologist, and this has all these different kinds of implications. Um, and I think you made a note in passing that in your own personal experience, you found it more helpful to have um, a male psych, a male therapist, therapist. Um, yeah. which is probably representative of, of what 
you know, a lot of, a lot of folks uh, feel for whatever reason, I personally mm. have a female therapist, but we don't have to go into my private life now or my personal life. I mean, she's, I mean, I like her, but anyway, um, <laughs> but, but with, <laughs> with Jordan Peterson though, um, where do you think, obviously a big part of the problem, he doesn't actually come up with policy solutions. That's not really his thing. He wants no. to, in a sense, make young maybe somewhat frustrated, angry men feel better. But he would also say, I think that in his 12 rules for life, that there are practical things that he puts in there that any individual in celly male, and that's probably something we should move away from. I don't know how you feel about incel as a way of dismissing the concerns of young, angry men, but, um, I guess some of them are incels hmm. um, and some of them are also vol cells, which is a new term that I, w I only became acquainted with, you know, in recent months. And I hmm. guess it stands for voluntary celibate instead of yeah. involuntary celibate, but maybe just like unpack the Jordan Peterson phenomenon for us, what that tells us, where he goes wrong. Do you think there's something mm -hmm. positive? Because if he's telling young men, to kind of clean up their room. I mean, it's pretty basic, and I guess their parents should probably tell them that. But if they weren't aware of the importance of cleaning up their room and, and having this kind of self-discipline, maybe there's some use to it? I don't know. Yeah, I, I think the first thing I would say is anybody that doesn't think that the success of Jordan Peterson of reaching this audience that he, that he has is just not paying attention and is not and is not thinking hard enough about what's happening in our society. So you talked about the books, but then this global tour, I mean, it's like they're filling out stadiums um, with with uh, thousands of people sort of turning up to his stuff. So the sense of like him having, he, it's like a, it's like someone who was just like drilling for oil, like, you know, and just hit this massive well um, at, to his own surprise, I think, as much as to anybody else's. And so I think, look, he has the 12 rules for life, make your own bed, tidy up your room. That's the bit I really wish my kids had paid more attention to. Uh, because, you know, most most boys are going to read Jordan Peterson, I think, at, at some point. the I think his the real secret, though, of his appearances and of his book is not what, is not what he's saying. It's the fact that he's listening. It's the yeah. fact that he's hearing. It's the fact that... These young men can write to him or talk to him, or ask these questions, and he's kind. It feels like he's on their side, and it feels like he's listening to them respectfully and hearing them. And of course, then he'll say some crazy shit because he thinks out loud, right? So he's bound to say some crazy shit every now and again. But really, just that I think that's like it's a simple. He's a psychologist by background. I just think that's been his is to listen, and that tells me there's a lot of people who want to be heard. And who don't feel like they're being heard right now, and it's disproportionately these young men who are flocking to him. So that's what it's what's what it's telling me is he's just become this kind of massive listening ear for millions of men who don't feel heard. And unless you take that seriously, then I don't take you seriously, because that means there's something out there in our culture, in our society, that he's tapped into. And I disagree with where he goes. He then ends up, in my view, overweighting biology as an explanation for what's going on. He doesn't have policy solutions. He individualizes the problem rather than looking at the structures. So I think he understates the structural challenges, ironically. He's very individually empathetic, but I don't think he's really looking at the... He's not an anthropologist. He's a psychologist. So I think he's in some ways understating what's happening. But I do think that he has, as I said, he's he's listening 
And the fact that that has become such a big deal tells us that there is a real issue here that other people need to start addressing too, and not just dismissing him. Like if you just dismiss him, oh, he's just a misogynist, he's you know, stoking all this male grievance. No, no, no. If that's what you think, you're not listening to him and you're not listening to the men who are paying attention to him. Richard, well I, said. Yeah, well said. I, 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 hmm. On the, the bigger question, um, well, I don't know if it's the bigger question. It's I, I guess I, I still, uh, even after now talking for, uh, you know, coming up in an, almost an hour and a half on this, I I wonder the extent to which. Um, what's the book about? Is that what you're going to say? What, what's the book about again? <laughs> Tell us how you came. Is to it write about the book. mill or liberalism or romance or well, running across the road or where? What are we doing right? What are we doing right now? What's well, happening? Is it? Is, I guess. I guess the question is is um, whether we're talking about. A crisis, or just a, no. a, a or a, a a change, a profound change. That's I deliberate. I yeah. deliberately don't use the word crisis. Yeah, because there's well, first of all, there's always the chapter eleven problem, which I know you guys have talked about, yes. which is like massive crisis. So you got these books that are essentially <laughs> the secular equivalent of the Book of Lamentations, right? Um, and then you, and then you and then you get to the end of it, and it's like, oh, we need universal pre-K, whatever the hell it is. They, you know, it's, um, uh, <laughs> because the edit because your editor says, well, you need some solutions. Yeah. Um, and you know, so and I don't do that. I mean, right. this is pretty rich in policy ideas, and agree or disagree with them, I wanted them on the table because if you're arguing with me about whether this is the right policy, then it means we're having the argument I want to have because it presumes there's a problem to solve. Yeah. If you don't like my solutions, great, but we've guess what? We're addressing a problem. Um, so I do, I, I absolutely um, do want to talk about uh, like real solutions, uh, not just problems. But I, the closest I get to using the word crisis is when I talk about fatherhood. Yeah, I think there's a problem in the education system. I think the labor market has turned against a lot of men. There's huge issues. But I think the closest thing to a crisis that we've got uh, is this sense of like the potential benching of millions of men who no longer fulfill the traditional role of fatherhood and how that's bad for them. It's bad for their kids. Bad, by the way, it's especially bad for their sons, bad for society, bad for women, bad for everybody. And so I, I'm still there, not quite ready to go to it because I honestly think the world, the word crisis is overused. You know, we have a crisis of crises, honestly, um, in my view. And so, and, and it, again, I don't think this is an area that's well suited to polemic as people are grappling with these really difficult and complex issues. So I, I, don't, I don't talk about the crisis of masculinity. I think that there are difficult, we're having some difficult times with it, it's a struggle. But it's, I think it's a bit lazy just to slap crisis on it. I think, it's, I think in some ways it's deeper than that, not the crisis of masculinity. It's actually like these are tectonic changes, like the, the tectonic plates have shifted. That's not to crisis. That's, that's something much, much deeper. That's a cultural challenge that we face, which we've been taught talking about yeah and, and and i guess i guess what I'm, I'm sort of grappling at uh sort of groping at there is that you know it's also a book about america it's about uh this situation in america you 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 do reach out to different uh sort of manifestations similar manifestations happening in different mm. societies but it's a book about america and and mm -hmm. in many ways uh the situation the 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 problem if not the crisis we're facing in america is 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 sort of culturally bounded in that way. But at the same time, it's it's broader than just America. There, there's, in a way, uh, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, dig back into my undergraduate sort of, you know, uh, philosophical leftism, but it's, one, one could definitely have a materialist uh, explanation about all of this. This is, this is uh, hmm. uh, basically 
post-industrial society, markets demanding uh, skills. And, uh, you know, apart from the ideological shifts we had about feminism, it's also served economies very well. The movement of women into, into, into markets has, you know, benefited the societies that have been uh, the most that have been able to actually accommodate that. They're the, the richest societies and, and the most mm. able to deal with these things. So in a sense, you know, if you take a step back, and I'm just trying to sort of, as we wrap up here, even maybe decrisis it a bit more, if, it's, if it is something that broadly systemic, that, that materialist, if you, if you want to, you know, take that sort of line on it, um, maybe it works itself out ultimately. Uh, that, mm -hmm. you know, you get a, a certain kind of rejiggering about these roles. These scripts get written mm -hmm. perhaps uh, through intellectuals like yourselves proposing policy fixes that start writing these scripts. But ultimately, as you said, uh, men and women, uh, cis, <laughs> hetero men and women uh, want to spend time with each other, have sex with each other. Uh, there's the yeah. biological imperative to have children. Um, you know, and, and perhaps there'll be sort of bumps on the road with, uh, you know, disaffected men voting disproportionately for illiberal politicians. But ultimately, the mechanism underneath it all, the market mechanism is sort of pushing all of this down sort of an inexorable logic that that somehow will have to work itself out. Unless we'll you add to add a thorn. Just, yeah, go well, on. Well, Richard, before you, I mean, just to hmm. add a little thorn in this more up, I didn't know that Demir was going to try to end on a positive note. And I think that I have to step <laughs> yeah, in and make sure it. that we don't <laughs> yeah, have a obviously. problem on our hands. <laughs> hmm. I mean, the other option is we become like Japan. Um, and, you know, Demir said that people, there is still the biological urge to have sex. Yes, mm -hmm. that will probably stay with us to one degree or another. But it is worth noting that even here in the U.S., there is, quote unquote, a sex recession. And I, I do, I, there's a reason I wanted to make sure we mention Japan, because in, in Japan, it's actually a lot so. worse. And um, you do... You, you do mention this briefly, it probably requires several books on its own, that there's this whole phenomenon of hikimori in Japan. Mm -hmm. I, I guess it translates as herbivores, um, which I suppose is mean to vegetarians to suggest that they um, are not able to biologically reproduce. But the, you have a lot of these young men who literally live in their rooms and have not gone out in months, if not years, and are and do not talk to women and that they just stay as hermits perpetually. Um, and that is a scary, and luckily they're not marauding because you, in Japan in particular, you know, you probably don't want too many men to be marauding with right-wing movements. And, you know, there is a historical precedent for how that can go wrong. But, um, and, and I think, but I, I'm curious, like to mm. what extent Tell us a little bit about, as we close up here, like the variation here, because can we learn something as Americans from other countries? I mean, the, the example of Finland is also interesting to me because it's the most one of the most gender equal, at least when it comes to women's empowerment um, uh, countries in the world. But it's interesting that they've had this situation where they don't have enough women going into science and technology. And it's this weird paradox that you touch on that when mm. you actually achieve something close to gender parity and you give women the choice to do anything they want, it turns out, at least in the case of Finland and a couple of other countries, they decide to not go into science and technology specifically. 
So there's a couple different models or lack thereof that we can look at and they don't give us a clear direction, but I'm curious, like you looked at some of this um, across different cases. You do, and I, and I, this is sort of like a softball mm. to you because Scotland is maybe the bright spot. Not that you're Scottish, well, I don't mean to imply not that. Not so more anymore, but, actually, not so much anymore, but we can get into that maybe. They've actually oh, abandoned okay. their gender, they've abandoned their gender okay. parity targets since I, since I finished well, the book. Well, never mind. I guess there's no models. Yeah. Well, no, but I mean, no. even there though, I mean, I, again, <laughs> Allow me my optimism, even though it's it's more fatalism than optimism. I mean, in the sense that 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 uh, you know, uh, if if I guess that's part of maybe that's the way to 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 nail this down. Uh, to a certain extent, you know, one of your policy prescriptions to get men into uh, you know, the acronym is heat. The sort of you know uh, heal. heal heal. Sorry, H, H uh, <laughs> health education administration. Although heat would have been better. Heat would be better. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Instead, yeah. instead of instead of STEM, um, and you know, yes. uh, and what Shadi was gesturing at there that you know there have been challenges to get women into STEM, though there have been some uh, you know notable you know uh, ha there has been some progress in towards that, and so you know try it on both sides and, and make sure it works. Um, mm. But at the same time, maybe maybe again policy is uh, a necessary but insufficient sort of way, and and these things will end up working themselves we'll work out, out in a different way. The question yeah. is, again, is Japan a cautionary tale? Um, I don't know. Well, okay. Uh, so I, I was sort of scribbling down um, some of these kind of final points in the hope that I could touch all of them, but I, I think I got to 38. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's what we do that here. To address in my last, my round, from Scotland to Finland stem to rescripts to pessimism. Right, so I'm not going to do justice to those last two contributions, um, but I'll say I will say a few things. Like first is I, on the the stem paradox is is interesting because what's happened there I think is that you get conditions where you've got. Uh, some much more like material equality, and some people would say a strong welfare system too, which does allow people, it quotes the luxury perhaps, to sort of pursue their preferences a bit more closely. And it does turn out that in those countries, there are fewer women pursuing STEM. And so I think a reasonable interpretation of that is that that means that just everything else equal, even in a completely equal society, there won't be absolute gender parity in absolutely every occupation. I mean, I was just, a, I was just actually just having a conversation with some colleagues earlier and how talking about how incredibly male dominated construction work is and deep sea fishing and all the very, very liberal young women in the conversation said, yeah, fine, you can have it. And so I think like there's going to be these, di these differences are going to remain, but we can be more relaxed about them if we're sure that they are the result of genuinely expressed preferences and not the result of patriarchal or other kinds of oppressive expectations. And so it means that we can just sort of breathe a bit more. It means we can relax a little bit, honestly, um, because we're winning, right? You, you're winning and you're having you're having uh, the results of that are these different patterns in occupational choice. What you're not relaxed about is when there's like 3% of early years educators, including one of my sons, are men. As a share of the profession, that's half as many as women flying US military jets. And I do not believe for a moment that there is a biological explanation for why it's only 3% of men. Maybe it won't be 50% of men in those roles. But if the distributions of, of interests and preferences and personalities of the two overlap much more than that. So if we can get used to overlapping distributions, great. And I will try and end on a note of reasonable optimism 
The caveat here is this won't happen by itself. We have to do work and we have a responsibility to step up to this cultural challenge. I'm not saying crisis, but it is a challenge. I'm optimistic partly for the reasons you say to me, which is like just materially, like the women's movement understood the role of material progress, which is why we've seen the rise in economic independence. There are still economic incentives for men to do well. There are economic and social incentives for men to find good mates and vice versa. This stuff, some of this stuff will, will, I think, kind of work itself out. And I'm very encouraged. And you have to watch my own boys grow up and adults and form relationships and do so. It's a different, it's a more complex world, probably than what I was in, and definitely more complex than what my father was in. But they're navigating it and they're finding ways to, to flourish in it. And so I have a lot of hope from that. But I will say this, that it does require some scripting, right? To use this verb of you, right? A social script doesn't write itself it's cultural and i think it's very important for liberals defined i think on the terms that we probably agree on here as what we mean by liberal to be part of that the re-scripting of masculinity cannot be left in the hands of social conservatives that is not to say they don't have a role to play but liberals need to be part of that scripting too the idea that liberal societies can do without social scripts is dangerous nonsense and it's particularly dangerous when it comes to a challenge group such as many men men are now and so liberals need to step up and like we have to write the script together uh and right now i feel like we're barely started on the project well guys you heard it here um i was gonna say uh boys and girls because they're both addressed clearly and that's important <laughs> um and we shouldn't just say guys this is for everyone Okay, I'm, <laughs> whatever. I'm just trying to like. I was just trying to like make puns and stuff. But um, hmm. but thanks so much, Richard. I mean, this is this was a real treat, and um, I think that anyone who will have listened to this full conversation will want to jump out of their seat and buy a copy. Uh, well, I guess they don't have to jump out of their seat because they can just do it on Amazon, it's and on they phone. should do that right on Amazon. Now. <laughs> yeah, and we'll include a link yeah. and we'll do all that. And um, this was incredible. And, um, you know, it makes me proud to be at Brookings to have a colleague like you, Richard. So well, thank you for thank you. being with us. Right. That, that, that means a, a great deal to me, honestly. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for your support for the book, both in this conversation and, and more generally. And thanks to both you and Amir for a, a really thoughtful conversation. Uh, you've really done justice to the intent of the book. And that's, um, that's something that I'm very grateful for. So thank you. Thanks, Richard. Our pleasure. Okay. Bye, Richard. Thanks. Thanks.